0: Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. So, funding secured, eh?
1: This continues to get odder by the day. So this morning, Elon Musk released another statement. I don't even know what to make of it at this point. But the funny thing to me is that no matter what happens, the people who are involved in Tesla become more entrenched either way. So if you're long Tesla, you view everything he's doing as genius. And if you're short Tesla, you view everything he does as idiotic. Don't you see both sides? Oh, of course I do. But it's just funny to me how no matter what happens, they become more entrenched. And that's why I would just I wouldn't want to touch this thing, because there's so much like emotion involved, and it is kind of hard to believe because it, I don't know. It seems like he's making this up as he goes, but like it almost it's almost like he could have he's playing poker and he does the flush and he gets a card turns over at the end that saves the day for him or something, right? Like if this Saudi deal comes through.
0: Well, speaking. Of making it up as he goes. I don't know where he got this, but he wrote in the letter, "My best estimate right now is that approximately two thirds of shares owned by all current investors would roll over into a private Tesla."
1: Right. That's uh, where
0: is that Where is that estimate coming from?
1: <laughs> That's good. That's a good question. Probably people he talks to on Twitter. But <laughs> so he's saying that this funding would probably come from the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and I mean, I don't know. Maybe that happens, right? Like that, you can't rule it out. But it just—the whole thing—just it—it makes no sense from both sides, is, is what I'm seeing, and I just—I so, don't get it.
0: He also said that the capital required for going private will be funded by equity rather than debt. So there are some estimates that he's going to need seventy billion dollars, which is going to cost four point two billion dollars a year to finance. And he's saying that's not going to happen. But even still, it's a humongous number, and. I understand why people are sick of talking about this, but this is a big deal. It's a gigantic company with a CEO who is so polarizing and potentially a genius who's going to change the future. Like how could you not be entertained by this?
1: Yes, he's a genius slash troll. And I don't know which one he which role he likes better, but it seems like he's liking the troll role a lot. A lot. Like he just wants but, to kill the short sellers.
0: He's an unstable genius at that. And yes. I think he uh did he actually send those short shorts to Einhorn? Because Einhorn took a picture of it and tweeted it, but I don't know if that was if he was joking. I'm not really sure. Yes, David
1: ends. David Einhorn is a short seller of Tesla, and Elon Musk sent him a a box of short shorts. At least that's the story, and that was what we saw on Twitter. But it last week was I mean when he put put this out there about the funding secured, it was just it was a like bonkers day, and I still am kind of having a hard time wrapping my head around this, but it's. Never a dull moment, I guess.
0: Oh, wait. Was that the best day on Twitter?
1: I put that out there in a piece. And I mean, obviously, there's different pockets of Twitter. For us in the finance realm, it had to be, I say, top five easy. Do you have the four remaining? Oh, man, that's a good question. I'd have to really think about that. But I think in terms of content, it's like it's been a buildup for this, right? Like there was such a huge buildup of people talking about it forever. And then it finally something comes out and everyone is on the same page. The jokes were flying. I mean, the jokes got beat into the ground almost immediately. And I, I hand up, I took part in that too.
0: The other moments that come to mind over the last few years were not necessarily entertaining or funny, like this was. Like the election was not funny, Brexit was not funny, August twenty fourth, two thousand fifteen was not funny. True, but this was like a "what is even happening" type moment that I think everybody got something out of.
1: Yes, and people were getting people were trying to dunk on each other left and right, and it, it just. It, I mean, until this all plays out, I don't know, but I, I still. We'll see. We'll have more to talk about this in, in the future. But its uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen.
0: So Aswath Damodaran, who's done uh, a lot of valuation analysis on Tesla, which quite bluntly probably just doesn't work for a company like this, has written the public about the public-to-private transition. And he wrote, quote, "...in short, it has to be a company that does not need access to large amounts of new capital to continue operating, where the market is underpricing the company relative to its intrinsic value." And that feels the actions that it needs to take in its best long-term interest will either create public backlash or adverse market reactions. And so he finally, he said, it should come as no surprise that most companies that have gone through the public to private transition have been aging companies, no growth, no capital needed, trading at prices that are below their peer group, and that need to shrink or slim down to keep operating. And the obvious implications of this all being that Tesla has none of these characteristics.
1: You know, I hate to take a victory lap here, but apparently someone reminded me I said Tesla should go private a few months ago on this show, which I totally didn't remember saying. But it it is kind of... Like Dell went private, and I think for like $25 billion in 2013, and you never hear about them anymore. And I feel like a company like Tesla is not the kind that would be out of the spotlight, even if it went private. You still hear a lot about them. But it just... I don't know. It seems like he had to do something because it just seems like it all came to a head. And I... I don't. Nothing would surprise me with this one at this point. I don't know. I don't know what to say even.
0: All right. Well, it it appears as if they're trying to do a hundred percent share buyback.
1: Yeah, pretty much. So you had a really lengthy piece out this past week called the scapegoat, and I know you've been working on it for a couple weeks because you've been kind of bouncing some ideas off of me, and you kind of dove into a lot of different things. And in speaking of the buyback thing, something that we've been talking about a lot is the buybacks get blamed for a lot of ills in the economy. And it just seems like the the wrong avenue to go down if you're looking to solve these problems. So why don't you walk me through a little bit of where this took you and some of the other stuff you found that you didn't include in your piece?
0: So it just seems to me that it has just become a political weapon at this point, And all the problems plaguing society would be somehow better off if share buybacks did not exist. and it's just factually inaccurate. And unfortunately, the drumbeat and the ridiculousness and the uh, rhetoric in these articles just keeps growing louder and louder. So just as an example, The Atlantic just wrote one, stock buybacks are eating the world. The once illegal practice of companies purchasing their own shares is pulling money away from employees' compensation, research and development, and all the corporate priorities with potentially sweeping effects on business dynamic. I mean, companies generate profits, right? like These decisions to, to buy back shares are not made instead or before the decision to compensate employees. So there's just so much misinformation. And I really do understand because the deeper down this rabbit hole I went, the more confused I got. So I totally understand why there is a, a misunderstanding and a lot of misinformation out there. It's just, it really is the wrong boogeyman.
1: I thought one of the best points you provided was the fact that a lot of these companies effectively take on debt to buy back shares. And if you're a CEO of one of these large companies, if you subscribe to the Warren Buffett rules of how to run a company, you know your biggest job is capital allocation. And in a lot of ways, people say, oh, they're just borrowing money to, to buy back their shares. That doesn't make any sense. But that's a capital allocation decision of taking on debt to fund equity. And it really just changes your capital structure. And so it's not like people; these CEOs are going to borrow money to pay their employees. That would not make sense but in this if you think about it in terms of capital allocation in a lot of ways it does.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a corporate restructuring issue which again, just a lot of people don't understand and I empathize with that and I empathize with a lot of the shit that's going on um in terms of people not being able to make ends meet, but this is just not the right place to point the the arrow. And one of the best retorts against the agency problem where management has a different agenda than stakeholders or comes from John Cochrane, who writes at The Grumpy Economist. He said, what CEO wants to say, we didn't have any good ideas, so we gave the money back to shareholders? This, no, build solar-powered spaceships to the Mars Colony. This is, in fact, the classic agency problem that managers are prey to, using corporate cash in unprofitable expansions and investments that make the CEO look good but lower the value to shareholders. And now politicians chime in and want you making even worse investments and exc- excoriating you for giving shareholders back some of their money. So I think that is really a, a key point that never ever gets brought up.
1: Right. Yes. I totally agree. And I mean, the I think the worst part about it for most people is the fact that, and you touch on this in your piece, the majority of people who own shares in the stock market are rich people. So when buybacks happen, rich people now have more money to do something with. And I think that's the problem that a lot of people have with it, the fact that it's just there's so, it's so uneven in the stock market and I think that's that's the biggest problem. I wish there was an easier way to get more people involved in the stock market. Like that that's the way <laughs> honestly like if you want to think of a simple way to fix the retirement savings crisis and all these other wealth inequality things. Like You can try to make all these rules you want, but the wealthy people are still the holders of financial assets. And I think we need to figure out a way to help more people be invested in financial assets.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that that companies could potentially do, and I don't think they ever would, but why not set up 401ks for employees and give them shares in stock? Instead, right. instead of a, instead of a match, just do something like that, and that gets to the point of it's not gross net buybacks that matter. It's net. It's net, right? So a lot of this is is used to offset the issuance of of stock options that are given to executives, and that's one of the problems. It's at the compensation committee level. So there was an article by Harvard Business Review about stock buybacks that that you know took a not so kind view on them, and one of the examples that they gave was Humana. Which had spent 13 million dollars on board compensation over the previous decade, and one of the problems is that the the people that serve on these boards are other CEOs, and they're not incentivized to lower compensation of their peers. If anything, they're trying to leapfrog them. So I think that that is probably that is definitely an issue. I won't deny that that the incentives there are an issue, and one of the easiest ways to do that is a lot of these um, bonuses that CEOs get are tied to earnings per share metrics why not at least account for the dilution or use something like total shareholder return or net income? But earnings-based compensation is ridiculous when, when you are in fact buying back shares that are greater than the issuance. So in a Reuters article, they said that fewer than 20 of the S&P 500 companies disclose in their proxies, whether they exclude the impact of buybacks on per share metrics that determine executive pay. That is bullshit.
1: Whoa. All right. Mic drop. Yes. No, I, yeah, I agree. It's... Unfortunately, a lot of people don't take the time to studying, and I I almost hate being the person or the people that defend buybacks because obviously, in a lot of ways, they're not the greatest thing in the world. But it's it's you're arguing two different issues here when you're talking about wages versus capital right. allocation.
0: But so, like, just to pound on this one more time, like if 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 the hurdle is four dollars and fifty cents a share in earnings, and a company buys back nine hundred million dollars net to increase the earnings per share to four fifty 450 or four fifty one, that is nonsense. And there there are easy workarounds like I said, something like total shareholder return as a benchmark or shareholder versus their peers or versus the benchmark or whatever it is. But earnings per share as a, as a thing just sort of sucks.
1: Right. I totally agree. All right, let's move on. Yeah, well, kind of echoing on some of your sentiments for why the sort of bottom half or even the bottom 80% or so is falling so far behind. So Noah Smith had a piece for Bloomberg last week and it had some really good charts in it. And it was titled, Many Americans Still Feel the Sting of Lost Wealth. And his whole point was one of the reasons that it's becoming so unequal is because much of the bottom half of the wealth chain is just really so much so tied to their housing. So he says, the he showed this chart and it showed that the top 1% have something like 75% of their wealth in financial assets and just 9% in housing. And if you go to the next 19%, it would be about 40% in financial assets and 28% in housing. But if you go to the bottom 80% of people, it's 63% in their primary residence and 12% in financial assets. And so that's one of the reasons that the Great Financial Recession was so hit the bottom half so hard, not the, even the bottom half, um, the bottom 80% or so, so hard because all of their wealth more or less is tied up in their house.
0: Yeah. So when you look at all these charts on inequality... It only is uh, the gap only widens after the Great Financial Crisis.
1: Yes, right, because the owners of the financial assets are the people at the top, and it's it's interesting because I mean, in some ways, owning a house is a is a kind of a forced savings mechanism, and so I think in some ways it's good, but in other ways, obviously, you can't spend that wealth because you can't spend your house. I suppose you can always tap into the equity but a lot of people have an offsetting liability. So that's why the net worth figures for these people are so low because their biggest asset also has a big liability attached to it and it takes them a long time to pay off. So I don't really know what that means in terms of people retiring, but I would say there's going to be a lot of people in the coming years, especially boomers who are going to be looking for ways to tap their home. So I think what I'm trying to say is invest in reverse mortgages. Is that a, is that a thing?
0: Uh, well... I'm just kidding. No, I know you're kidding. But I think that that, that's a good point, that a lot of people are going to be are going to force to rely on that, which I don't I don't really know anything about those financial instruments, but I don't I think that's probably what's going to happen. And I think from what I understand, they are getting better. They used to be predatory from what I understand.
1: Yes. And so my other investment would be I'm going to go long people getting taken advantage of in their with their home equity. How's that?
0: Yeah, I agree. So you wrote a post last night that I thought was really interesting. It's eight questions I've been pondering. So I just wanted to go over a few of these. Uh, the first one, what if gold dies out with the boomer generation?
1: I got a lot of hate mail on this one already. Not you got emails? Lie. Oh, yeah, definitely. Twitter responses, emails. Not not too bad. But uh, people just telling me, you know, gold's been around for a few thousand years. What makes you think it's going to go away? And I, don't, I obviously don't think gold's going to go away. This is just kind of a thought exercise. But gold is worth 7 trillion dollars the world's gold right now and doesn't don't we eventually reach a point where technology kind of makes it obsolete maybe like i mean isn't that a possibility at least where or just that it's not going to continue to grow over time i mean i think that honestly i think one of the best case scenarios for like bitcoin and cryptocurrencies would be the millennials gold where I think some people would say, "Well, that's that's not living up to the aspirations we have for it," but I think that's probably that could be one of the best case scenarios for it.
0: Well, no, it's interesting. It's really only been freely traded for like fifty years, because it was pegged to thirty five dollars until nineteen seventy, and before that, I read about this in Once in Golconda and. I feel like was it at like was it at like two dollars for like a hundred years or something like that?
1: A long time, or it didn't really move because they use it as the peg for everything. William Bernstein actually, in one of his books, has a good thing where he says gold in the time of Jesus could buy a nice man's suit, and now it can do the same thing. So I guess in some ways, the fact that it's stayed sort of with inflation for that long is is kind of impressive. But you're right, gold as a free flowing price has only been around for 40 or 50 years. Before then, they pegged it to a certain value. And so it's done a lot of catching up lately.
0: It is the ultimate story investment. I mean, people think that it's a hedge against inflation. It's a hedge against uncertainty.
1: Yes. Yeah, central banks.
0: I don't think it's correlated to anything, honestly. And and is it... I mean, I think that you have a fair point. I mean, it's obviously not going away. But I don't think that we're going to see spectacular returns going forward. But who the hell knows? I don't really feel too strongly about this.
1: You're right. Which is why you use trend following rules for your GLD purchase before, right?
0: Well, okay. So that was a joke. But I thought that I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. I think that's a great example of how to fail in public if you're going to talk about what you're doing. Because I, I laid out why I was doing what I was doing. And I gave myself an out. And I took it. I lost 2% in that investment.
1: All right. Uh, Yes, I'll give you a pass on that one. And it was big fodder for the podcast. It was great
0: fodder. (laughs) All right, next. How hard was it to invest in stocks in 2009? And an amazing post is on December 7th, 2009, John Hussman and Business Insider said that there's an 80% chance of a market crash in the next year.
1: I had a reader send me like 50 articles from 2009 that were all like this, that double-dip recession, it's a sucker's rally, it's short covering all these things. And it's kind of hard to remember at the time how hard it really was to put money to work. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. They just look back at the prices and think, oh, that was a generational buying opportunity. But at the time, there was very few people telling you that this everything's going to be all right. We got the all clear. Everything's fine. I mean, even in 2010, there was another double digit setback in stock market where everyone thought, okay, here we go again. So... It, it's easy to look at this in hindsight, and a lot of people I think that missed out are saying, "Well, I'll just invest in the next crash." But it's definitely not always that easy.
0: I don't think it got easy until Ramp Capital's account went live.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now the easy money's been made. Okay.
0: Okay. Let's next, is Amazon going to take over my closet someday? And I have a, I have something to tell you. Okay. So I have not purchased any clothes on Amazon, but okay. and I might regret saying this, but I bought five T-shirts at Walmart the other, not Walmart, Target the other day.
1: Okay. Why are you Fantastic that? t-shirts. I don't okay. know. So I
0: might get s- some shit. But I is, this tar- is this t-shirt
1: you're wearing right now a Target t-shirt?
0: No, this is Gap. Okay. But anyway, so go ahead with your Amazon.
1: I just my wife shamed me because of some of my workout gear that I use was just probably getting old and ratty because I choose comfort over quality. But so I looked I was looking around, and of course every time I searched for something to go on Amazon, and they had workout shirts on there, and they were like two for sixteen dollars. And so I started looking around a little bit and they have this Amazon Essentials brand and i've heard of it before and they've got a bunch of good stuff on there and it's all really cheap and of course you get it in two days from amazon they also have this program where you can try something out for seven days for free and send it back to them if it doesn't fit or you don't like it it's so it's kind of interesting to think about amazon breaking into all these different brands and taking over in some ways a lot of stuff that they they already have all the data on and so they know what people like to buy and i think it'd be interesting to see amazon take over stuff like this. And so I actually brought a couple workout shirts and a pair of swim trunks. And so far, so good. I'm happy with the quality. By the way,
0: I sort of chuckled that you call it swim trunks because I guess that's like a geographic thing. I call it a bathing suit.
1: Okay. I do I feel like swim trunks is like a dad way of saying it. So yeah. maybe I'm just morphing into that. I don't, I don't know. Okay. Swimsuit. Yeah. Swimsuit. Yeah. Trunks. No. Bathing suit. Okay. Ba- yeah, that's true. Bathing suit. Sorry.
0: So Morgan tweeted a chart. It is of the S&P 500 going back to 1990. And red is when it's above its long-term average. And basically 95% of the chart is red. There's a few slivers of white. And I guess the point being, or the implications are that the CAPE ratio is not, either doesn't work or it's not a great timing toll, whatever he was saying. But Meb Faber actually lead him with a link to a post and the title of this post is, and I remember reading it when it went live, but I reread it for this, you would have missed seven hundred and eighty percent in gains using the cape ratio, and that's a good thing. Did you reread this or no?
1: Yes, I skimmed it and you also did a nice summary here for me. But the the big thing is Morgan said a dollar you know, since nineteen ninety, a dollar turned into thirteen dollars and seventy cents in the S P. And if you would have just used the CAPE ratio being below or above average as a timing tool in that time, you would have been out of the market the entire time, almost.
0: Yeah, so maybe that was a little bit too simplistic. And Meb's now, granted, that is the nature of of a tweet. And Meb's post has much more nuance. The only thing that I will quibble with in Meb's post, um, which I don't really think is a fair analogy, is he likened investing in above average caper ratio to hitting on a nineteen at the blackjack table. And I think that Meb would probably agree with this, maybe not. But in blackjack, there are rules. In investing in the stock market, of course, there are no rules and there is no length to or limit to how high or low the cape ratio can go. I guess there is a a limit on the, on the downside. Okay. Quibble aside, some of the points that he made were really, really good. So he said that, yes, looking in a vacuum is just really not fair. So going back from 1993 to 2015, the SP 500 did 780%. And back in 1993, stocks started to get expensive, but you could have invested in bonds over the same time. And done quite well. So the thirty-year Treasury, for instance, did six hundred eighty percent. So just sixty basis points a year less. Another thing that you could have done was you could have used a very simple trend-following strategy on the Cape ratio, where if the Cape is above twenty, you invest in stocks. If the Cape is below twenty, you invest in
1: bonds. And doing that, whoa, trend trend following on the Cape—that's an odd one.
0: Well, it worked. You could have switched to ten-year bonds or thirty-year bonds, and both of them did very well taking this one step further to its final logical conclusion is that the stock market is much bigger than the S P 500. And what if you did the same thing, the same timing thing where above 20, you invest in stocks and below 20, you invest in bonds. But instead of just investing in stocks, you invest in the bottom 25% of countries based on CAPE. And doing that would have tripled the return of just the S&P 500 over the same time period. So to conclude, Meb is making some really good points here. But I think that Morgan also makes a good point because most of the arguments that we hear for and against the CAPE ratio are not as nuanced. And it is very much black or white. Stocks are expensive and they're going to crash. or I mean, not or. That is probably the only thing that you hear about CAPE.
1: And the thing that we talk about a lot is the fact that Going back to the eighteen seventies for the Cape Ratio, it's a it's a moving target and so using that as a as a place to like draw a line in the sand is, is never gonna work because it's constantly it's more nuanced than that and it's constantly moving and so I think anyone trying to use valuation as a timing indicator is going to be they're gonna have a lot of hard time in the markets. So that that'd be my well, did, ha- stance. excuse
0: me. Did you hear what did you hear about Meb's timing tool?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that well okay. That's uh I don't know. I, I don't. I feel like there's a lot better ways to do that. And it's kind of easy to look back on that and, and figure it out. But I think using valuation as a timing indicator, most studies would say, is not a good way to do things. Uh, would you not I,
0: agree? I, well, I, I would. I was kind of surprised. I don't remember reading this the first time. I was surprised at how good the results were um, of this back test. Another thing, to your point, is that if you ask somebody in 1993 what the long-term CAPE ratio was, they would say, what's a CAPE ratio?
1: Exactly. It didn't come out. Yeah. And... It really no one really started talking about it until uh, i think it i think schiller put it out in 88 or 89 for the first time ever and it didn't really really gain any groundswell until the late 90s so yeah and plus the guess what the average moved over that time so looking back at a long term average now it's much different now than it was then at the time so what information did you have at the time to go off of when you're looking at these switching indicators
0: well one of the one of the really interesting things about the Cape ratio is that I believe in the crash of 2000, the CAPE ratio got to its long-term average. Does that sound about right? Like even during the crash?
1: Right. It got back there barely.
0: So that should have showed you that maybe the nature of it has been changing. But I think I see both sides. I mean, obviously, I think that um, my opinion for most people is that you should use valuations as uh, something to set expectations, not necessarily a way to adjust your portfolio. But Anybody who says that valuations don't matter, um, I think that you could probably ignore them, right? Yep. Because of course, what you pay matters a great deal.
1: Yes. But I think it's more about giving yourself a range of potential outcomes and setting expectations than figuring out what's going to happen next.
0: All right. Let's move on to some listener questions.
1: Okay. Listening to investment podcasts has given me a dawning realization that my capital gains in the past decade were a result of luck and that my asset allocation today is a total mess. That's a pretty good realization. Yeah. At the same time, there's an emotional gravity to all the past bets that have resulted in gains. Can fee-based advisors help people get over behavioral inertia like this? Or does knowledge alone usually lead to better allocation over time?
0: To the first part, this is a little bit self-serving, but I would say yes. And of course, there's a lot of caveats. It depends is probably the best answer. It depends who you're working with. Um, does knowledge alone usually lead to better allocation? I would say probably not.
1: Yeah. Knowledge alone is definitely not enough to change behavior in my, in my experience. And I, I think getting there to that realization is definitely a huge leap forward because a lot of people never get to that point where they know i need to have a better plan in place and my portfolio was a total mess and it's just this mutual fund salad but i think it really depends on the person whether an advisor can help you or not it's kind of situational and and i think part of the reason that advisors or seeking help from anyone can can add value is the fact that a lot of people just don't know where to even begin, and what to turn to, or and how to change their behavior. So, I but I think getting to that point where you admit it is a is a good first step.
0: All right, what books, papers would you recommend a new advisor to read and study in order to begin developing their own investment philosophy?
1: Well, they'd have to listen to Animal Spirits episodes one through ten at one point five times. No, I would say I'm a huge. I learned a ton from all the William Bernstein books. So anything he's written, he's probably written seven or eight investment books at this point. So and would you say
0: start with Four Pillars and what's the other one?
1: Yeah, Four Pillars and the Investor's Manifesto or the two right, kind of right. beginner ones. And then he wrote four or five other uh, self-published ones. So I, w- I would definitely start with those. Um, let's see. Who else would you put in that, that mix?
0: I liked Rick Ferry's All About Asset Allocation. Yes. And I would also recommend Nick Murray's Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth.
1: Yeah, that's a very good start, I'd say. And, then you and would I would of-
0: recommend A Wealth of Common Sense by my co-host, Ben Carlson.
1: Oh, thank you. So, I think that's probably, good. and I I put a bunch of books at the end of mine in, in my book too that I recommend too. That kind of shaped my philosophy, so you can look there too. All
0: uh, right, what did you read, watch this week?
1: Okay, have you? Ever, I'm kind of late to this one, but it was kind of nice to read something that was gave me some hope for humanity. Uh, Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder. Have you read that one before? I did. It's an older one. Uh, it took me a while to get to it, and I finally did, and it was just an amazing story about a doctor who helps these people that that really need help around the world. Setting up hospitals elsewhere. Was he based in Haiti? That was his main spot where he went to. Yeah, it was. And this guy was really smart, but really compassionate, and helped people who really needed it. And he kind of did it all on his own in a lot of ways. So that was a really sort of uplifting book. Hart yeah, Knox, that guy.
0: That guy is a hero. Hard Knocks is
1: back on a- HBO. It's one of my uh, favorite shows every year. I, I well, that's one of my favorite shows every year. I love it. I think Leah Schraber could un, like <laughs> announce anything, like be a voiceover for anything. It would be, it would make it seem important to me. Well, yeah, you you know, like my, so my
0: wife like li- likes watching that show with me.
1: Yeah, my wife watches that too, and I just I love that show. The funny thing is, the w- when they show slow motion and they sh- they have like Leah Schreiber talking over people, like they can make me buy into any team. I'll be like, oh man, maybe the Browns are going to be good this year. And every year, it's just a crap team that doesn't so, do anything.
0: I thought the first episode was kind of boring, to be honest. I mean, I'm I'm definitely going to watch it, and I enjoyed it, but just like relatively speaking, it was sort of
1: eh. okay. See, it got me excited about football again. And then speaking of football. Uh the Jim Miller Alabama Nick Saban podcast is unbelievably good. I'm two uh, episodes in and I I am not a fan of Alabama or Saban at all. I think the guy's kind of pompous and I hate Alabama because they just win it every year, kind of like the Warriors. But you have to respect what they've done. I think he's got six national titles at this point and like his process is just un- like they talk of, it's all about psychology and motivation. In behavior and like staying consistent even when you win and not getting complacent. There's so many like business and investing and in behavioral psychology trade offs, and it. it's so good so far. It's still, still getting started, I think.
0: So, you put me on to this guy, and actually, Josh asked us about this also, this origins thing. So, I started listening to the one that he did on ESPN.
1: Yeah, it was very and good. And
0: I'm listening to the, I just listened to the social media episode. Really, really good.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wrote a whole book on ESPN. So, he's like really uh plugged into that place.
0: Yeah, the, the these guys have
1: all the fun. I love that book, yeah.
0: I never read it. Yeah. Okay. Um so I read Bethany McLean's new book. It's not out yet, but I know people that know people. Um it's called Saudi America.
1: That's pretty Oh, you're in the know here, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh
0: Jeez. it was so, it was so good um for many reasons. I mean, obviously Bethany's amazing, but it was only 130 pages, which I think should be the future of books. Oh, it that's was, great. It was a great read. It was, it was quick. It was powerful. And because it wasn't the 700-word tome, she was able to write about stuff that happened probably just a few months ago. So it was so up to date. It was awesome. Everybody's Did going to love it. Did she have a
1: section in there about how they're going to buy Tesla? Not yet.
0: No, but so the book, the first three quarters of the book was about Aubrey McClendon and, and what he did with Chesapeake Energy. Ah, okay. Which I only knew peripherally just from the headlines and stuff, but it was it was really great. Um, okay, so Bill Simmons had a podcast a few weeks ago talking about like the hundred best TV episodes. Um, but I think it was mostly like I don't know if they got into the episode so much as, as the blog post, but they spoke about the show Newlyweds with Nick Lachey and Jessica Simpson. Yes. Which I think was like responsible for setting off this wave of reality TV.
1: Really, yeah, it really was. Did you watch it at the time? I did not. I did you? Yeah, I. I, I'm not gonna lie. I watched it. It was. It was. It was like reality TV before people were self aware of what reality TV could do for them. So they actually were kind of acting like real people. And oh, it was great. Yes, I. And now she is she a billionaire? She's got a pretty big business line of some sort I think.
0: All right, so last week Seth Rogen was tweeting about some of the experiences he had on Pineapple Express. Did you see that?
1: Yeah, that was pretty great.
0: So then Judd Apatow tweeted, uh, "I've got one. Brian Cranston auditioned. He may have been he may have even read it at a table and and I said, I don't think he seems scary enough to seem like a real drug
1: dealer." That was pretty good. So that was pre Breaking Bad obviously. Yeah. And he didn't make it into Pineapple Express.
0: But isn't that funny? Like it's just a- another example of how, whatever you're doing, the future is always unclear.
1: Right. Yeah. It's predicting the future is very difficult. We'll say that. And well, that's I kind of get that from a lot of the Mark Maron podcast too, when he talks about actors and they they say you know a lot of times you do the best you can with a movie, and then it goes into editing and production, and it's out of your hands, and you have no idea whether it's going to be a good movie or not, even after going through all the scenes. You just have no clue what it's what the finished product is going to be.
0: That's like when we are when we we're recording this podcast. We just don't know. <laughs> that's, that's so true. And man. Speaking of that, I don't know. I don't know if I spoke about this last week on the show, but the Jay Leno Mark Marin podcast was freaking awesome. And I'm not necessarily a Jay guy because I'm a Howard Stern fan. Yeah, I loved it, but it was really good.
1: Yeah. What does Howard Stern have to do with Jay Leno?
0: Ah, uh, don't get me started.
1: Okay. All right. We, we can go down that rabbit hole another time. All right. So check out next week. We had we actually taped a show last week with Morgan Housel. We wanted to thank him for coming on because Michael's going to be on vacation. So we delve into the Tesla stuff a little more and talk a little bit more about the the private markets and venture capital. And we had a a good time with the three of us.
0: All right, email us at animalspiritspod at gmail.com and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening.